0: artist behind the epic melodies, songs and beats. Celebrating the best new music from around the world. This is the Estate of Trance podcast.
1: Yes, welcome to a new podcast with a very special, I would say almost a royal (laughs) member of the dance music (laughs) industry here in the studio, Nick Chicane.
2: Hello, mate. How are you?
1: Good. It's really weird because we have been chatting for the last half hour already, which could have been a podcast as well.
2: (laughs) So yeah, there might have be been a few expletives we would have had to take out, actually, Ruben. <laughs> we don't, swearing we, we, in we don't take
1: anything out. We can do. Okay. That's the nice thing about a podcast. You can do whatever. <laughs> right?
2: Yeah, sure. Just yeah. don't
1: say anything that cancel Just don't can, say anything that incriminates
2: you and I've been caught. Be careful, Nicholas. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Because we might hold you to that. Um, well, normally I would say, let's start at the beginning of, of you getting into dance music, but... You pretty much invented dance music, so it's been, <laughs> no, no. Let's go back to the to the times that you started making music and started making dance music. I would love to know what inspired you to to get going in it.
2: Um, right back in the day, inspired by the likes of Van and Jean Michel Jarre, I mm-hmm. ran. I was on, on holiday in the Isle of Wight, where I now live. Ran yeah. past a tent which was playing Jean Michel Jarre, and previous to that, I was schooled in classical music and all that sort of monarchy. And I heard this sound, and I went. The
1: synthesizers. I yeah, and
2: I went what is that? And um fast forward to
1: did you run in and check what it was or? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah because there was no Shazam's back then, so
2: <clears throat> it was actually a, an album called The Essential by Jean-Michel Jarre. It was a compilation album that came out Christ knows when. And uh and I listened, you know, it was stuff like Oxygen and, and stuff. And I, I remember listening to it. It wasn't just electronic music, by the way. Yeah. We're talking about Jarre who was was a very brilliant uh, crafting the melodies and haunting stuff. And I remember hearing it and going, I think I can do that, which is a really strange thing to say when you're about eight. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and I kind of, I fell into doing art school and all those things because I was dyslexic. And you find lots of DJs and, and artists and people in the music industry and creatives aren't very good at sums and Mm -hmm. English and stuff. So I fell into that stereotypical thing and I was, you know, and I was writing music and then I somehow stopped. This is about 1992 or three. Mm -hmm. Dance music was happening Rave culture in the UK and all that kind of thing, and I, s- for some reason, decided I needed to start working with DJs because I was just very, very much Vangelis-y very much yeah. synth, synth driven, not dancing,
1: like haunting weird, yeah, weird,
2: weird stuff. all that kind of stuff, and um, I I got working with various DJs and started to understand dance music and. Really? I'm like a composer. But how
1: did that go? Like, there, there was a DJ performing and you would walk up to them? I just, or got,
2: I just got friendly with some local DJs.
1: Yeah, you were like, hey, uh, do you guys want to get some music? Yeah, I, I, or- I
2: had I had a basic studio. He, we some, he brought some vinyls, we'd sample stuff, yeah. some beats and put things together. And it was kind of very basic dance production. You had some early software like Cubase or whatever. And you sort of higgledy-piggledy made these dance <laughs> records. And that's how it begins and obviously you don't get to hear all the terrible versions of say offshore that that went before it you know and I you know and really you know I'm a composer that got Shanghaied into dance music and never made his way back <laughs> well, that's
1: not too bad to be honest so you started out making music f- pretty much the, the early ghostwriting days I would say for local DJs
2: yes then you were making
1: music for them and
2: we were just I was just making this thing, and uh, I didn't know what it what it was and how it sounded. It needed it was it was synthesizers. It was slightly sad sounding, and I remember I wanted to make this kind of thing that sounded like dancey U two kind of euphoria and uh, m- mash those kind of genres together and. Um, uh, there was a lot of really interesting experimentation. So back then, I'm going into the studio and we mm. had what we call happy accidents. Oh, yeah. that, that's, I love that bit. Keep that bit and stuff. And now I don't really write or work like, like that anymore. I'm very, I work in my head a lot as well, which, yeah. I, which sounds like a bit nutty, but. Um,
1: I think it makes a lot of sense because we spoke about it with other artists here in the studio as well. Back in the days when you needed to make music especially if you were sharing studios with someone else, hmm. you would have like cardboard boxes with your presets and stuff <laughs> because you couldn't save anything, right? So ah. most of the times you were making music and you had one day to work on it and that's it.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh So it put
1: a lot more pr- pressure on it and you had to make decisions really fast, right?
2: I, uh, the luxury now of swapping projects, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm currently working on 20 odd r- tracks at, the, at this given moment. Um, Saltwater, which is the one that, really i remember most being up on the mixing desk and in the studio for something like three to four months it was there it was an analog desk all the synths were in the right place and you literally had to take two or three days off to come back to it to go oh that's what's wrong with it to get your perspective on it and and that's how it worked and really it, it was just really old school stuff and everything went out of tune you know, I, we used to run an Atari STE computer for sequencing and it used to do these wonderful things, right? So you do this song and it save it onto floppy disks. yeah. And then when you went to open it again, it went, oh, we haven't got enough memory. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't got, oh, no. And you just go and take your, mem- your computer and get it yeah. expanded, you know, and uh, it, all sorts of terrible things. But um, these are all the bits that kind of, You know, you're the sum of your parts. All that studio stuff is is where you are now. You can't swap it. True.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you started making music like that. And then the first thing that you did was starting Disco. Um,
2: It was Disco Citizens. citizens, Yeah. uh,
1: That was something that started before she came.
2: Yeah, it was right here, right now. Um, Which, believe it or not, He's going to make an appearance on the new Chicane album. Okay. I've actually gone back to my very, very first record. Um, Yeah, that was quite fun. Uh, uh, But that was also mental. It was crazy. I remember put together this really anthemic sounding record, pressed up 1,000 vinyls, blagged a mailing list, sent it to Judge Jules, Pete Tong, Paul follow, all the movers and Shakers, and, and a bunch of record companies. Records started to hype. People started to play it. Pete played it, and, and all of a sudden, the phone started ringing. And it was record companies trying to sign you. Yeah, and it was like it was a weird time, but f- just an incredible time as well, an incredible rush. And that was my first record, and that went top forty in the UK. My very first record, and um but so much effort—you had to
1: make the song, press it on vinyl, oh, yeah. send it out, wait for weeks for for something to get back
2: to you or yeah, something like that? Yeah. I mean, people, I think people forget how it worked back there. You were basically a kind of ragged record company. Yeah. You were the promoter, you were the the creator, you were the guy that did the, the design, because I was a graphic designer as well, so I did all the, all the graphics for it. And um, yeah, it was mad. But what was really mad about it was um, I had a kind of cr- shitty graphics job yeah. for the local Pronto print, in in the in the neighbouring town, and I remember speaking to my parents, and I said to them, "Look, I really think I can, I can do this music thing." Yeah, and I said, "Can you support me for three months while I have a go at this?" And that first record went to number one, and I can remember crying because I can remember realising. This can be done,
1: yeah.
2: Uh, You know, you don't sit, you don't leave school and go, I want to be a dance producer, I want to be a DJ, a superstar, blah blah blah. They just say, Yes, bye bye. The the men in white coats are waiting for you,
1: uh, (laughs) you especially back in those days, yeah.
2: And and this is this is 1996, you know. And I was like, Wow, so that's kind of how it all started, and it was really, really exciting. Um, uh, and I say that because. You couldn't make records back then, it, you know. You really had to be a boffin in a studio, and it, it, and you then get to be a bit of a bit of a boy shopping your shopping your record and just doing all those things. And it was it was um, it was a fascinating time. And then I did the, the exactly the same thing with offshore. Yeah. Uh, I I created the chicane
1: together with the Leo To together
2: with Leo. Yeah, so Leo and I did um, right here right now together as well. Yeah. Leo and I went to college together, Yeah. and we we're all, and that's where we met. And Leo was a DJ and had great ideas, and um, we wanted to do a different sound than um, what was Disco Citizens. And as everyone knows, the first Chicane record, Offshore, was was a downtempo. The whole project's meant to be a flipping beautiful down tempo <laughs> chill out thing, and here we are flipping 27 years later, and it's I'm into this, I'm still having to skate dance. <laughs> he's, just, he's still dance as a producer. Dance world, you know. Um, so we did this thing, but we did the same thing. Uh, I, I, we made this beautiful record. But you
1: already had the connections through Disco Citizens, right? right. But you, you took a different path.
2: Mm. So I did this record. Leo and I pressed it up, did the graphics. And then something weird kind of started happening. Sasha and Digweed started playing it because yeah. it was a breakbeat track, yeah. the original. So i playing it with, trying to play it with a 4 by 4 kick because uh, they loved it so much. And I was like, Ooh, what's going on here? So I did a Disco Citizens mix yeah. on it. And that was the thing that broke the camel's back and everything went crazy from there onwards, really. And there was a big frenzy trying to sign me and, ah, uh, you know, that whole record company thing, you know, getting into bed with the devil <laughs> to, 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 to get anywhere, you know. <laughs> They were they were crazy times, you know, and you know the next minute we had I don't know seven or eight top ten records and a number one record in the UK, you know, and, and and around the world and stuff. And that's that was a bit mental, really. Um, yeah,
1: because there was not a lot of dance music crossing the channel back in the days, also from the UK to let's say to the Netherlands. And I remember very well, vividly. I think Nina has the same growing up with these tunes on TV and on radio as well.
2: Well, it was really weird because uh, Radio 1, the national, the, the huge radio station, yeah. you know, it, it was such a different structure to what we have now, yeah. you know, because obviously we have Spotify and all those kind of things, which are radio stations that you choose the playlist. Yeah, or, but radio, what the algorithm chooses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hmm. Talk about that later. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the... Um, the we had we put a basically an instrumental four and a half minute record on the A-list at Radio One and it was completely unheard of.
1: Yeah. And because these were in the times that Radio One would play what a Bexy Boys. Yeah. <laughs> Captain Jack. <laughs> yeah, it was it <laughs> those was, kind of things.
2: It was pop culture. So yeah. I was part of that avalanche of records which underground started becoming overground. So there was this process and the process went like this. First of all, had to make a great record. You got, you got Danny Ramplin, Pete Tong, Judge Jules, Andy Durant, those guys to play your record. And next minute, there was a shift within the record companies. All the DJs that were out up and down the country became the ANRs. Yeah. For the record companies, they listened to what was going on. Next minute, your record got signed. If it got played enough, it jumps on the C list at Radio One. And then we're in a whole decade of dance culture, and the whole thing went bananas. Yeah, it was. It, it felt because because you lived it, and it was happening. You didn't really it's buzzing. You didn't really see it for what it was. It was just happening. Yeah, you know. And um, and now looking back, it was it was a pivotal stuff.
1: Yeah, I think um, in the Netherlands we had the the dance department, which is still is, is being run by Armin right now we had the same kind of thing, but BBC One Radio, I think, I remember being a young DJ, the first thing I would do on Monday morning is check all the playlists of Radio One just to see what's new, like, hey, or at a certain point when I started making music, I just want to see if Judge Jules played my track or whatever, you know. It's exciting times. It was. It was, it was not on demand, everything.
2: Yeah, it was really... It was it was really kind of groundbreaking, but because it was just happening, you didn't you didn't think of it that way. Yeah. When you're in it, you know, think of it that way. It's when people says to me, "Oh, it must have been amazing when you were writing those records," and I said, "You must have loved not, it." And I went, "No, I was really stressed trying <laughs> to write the next one. And I was just sort of like rabbit in the headlights, you know, trying to keep all the plates spinning and all the balls in the air. Yeah, and, you know, it was a really crazy time. Um, so." all of those kind of producers and all the people that were doing all those records, um, there's not a lot of us left kicking about. Uh, I, I'm clearly very stubborn and I'm, <laughs> and, I'm and I'm still, i still doing it. But that's fundamentally because I'm a, I think I'm a writer rather than just a kind of a DJ particularly and, uh, uh, I, I, it's all about melody for me and always has been and, and I try to inject an a, a element of longevity in everything that I do, you know. Yeah. And, um, It's fascinating to see the shifts that are happening now within dance music and dance culture.
1: Because unfortunately, BBC One hardly plays any dance music anymore. (laughs) Well, Well, they do, but it's only the the, the British ones. When it
2: does, I'm not sure they're the right ones.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a different discussion.
0: I also find it interesting because you say, like, I'm one of the only ones who's still there. Mm -hmm. But I was talking to Benno de Gouy about your music and then he told me that you were basically one of the first who made the um, crossover to dance music and kind of pop music because you had like Brian Adams on your record, yeah. for example. And I think maybe that's also, you had this this shift towards dance music becoming pop music. And Maybe that's also part of why you're still there I, because you're one of the originators of that.
2: Yeah, I I walked a very narrow tightrope between having a record which was played in the clubs and it was credible and also it was able to be on the radio that's a rather unusual thing to do and i don't do it deliberately it's just that's how Soldiers, yeah. that's how yeah. it comes out and i'm very very lucky that that's how it comes out yeah. so it doesn't uh, yeah i've done pop stuff i've you know i've written records for share and i did remixes for bewitched and I, I you know i love music you know as an entity but um yeah, I, I did this thing which seemed to sort of leap, leap genres slightly, which is kind of weird. Yeah, and you, p-
1: you released an album, of course, the, from far from the Met and crowds, which yeah. includes all of these hits that you were just mentioning. Yeah, um, and now all these years later, you made a new version of that because yeah. that's the, one of the main reasons why you're here, of course.
2: Yeah, and it was thank you for having me on to play play some of it. Um, yeah. uh, why am I doing that? You know. T- Twenty-seven years ago, or whatever it is, I've lost count. See, that's really worrying. I can't even remember when I did it. So, um, why am I doing
1: that? Um, well, well, you can think about it first a little bit because uh, there's still more to discuss, I guess. Yeah, sure. uh, because you started releasing all those tunes, uh, the, the hits were coming along, and and also what you said it, that was funny because I was r- doing a little bit of research that you said that all the DJs became A and R's because oh. it happened for you as well because Alex Gold signed one of your tracks and from that moment on you started releasing music with Extravaganza. Yeah. So, from that moment on did you start making music with Alex Gold in mind or were you still making music just for yourself? I'll
2: be perfectly honest with you. I make music for no one other than myself. Mm -hmm. I've always been that way and we were talking earlier and um, it's quite funny because the tempo currently for music is 130, 235, wherever it (laughs) is. I was doing a record this week at 120 beats per minute yeah. which is um I just do it for myself yeah you know and that's really rather important the moment you go around trying to please someone um you're not really doing it for for the right reasons does that make sense I don't know sounds yeah, like, sounds like yeah. a rather yeah. selfish statement <laughs> no I think the, I
1: think I think that's the most important thing to do as an artist because otherwise I always say like if you if you follow the trends then you know Someone, you you will be you disappearing. Keep, you have to keep current. Not, you, yeah. you
2: dip your toe in what's going on, you know, but you've got to, it's got to be you. And that's what people, that's really what people are buying. Not people, not buying the person that's playing the music that they think you're playing. I'm playing them, I think, I think I'm playing.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, but also like people become fans of music that they hear outside of the club that they have great memories to. So if there's mm. no heart in the music, then. People won't make memories to it. I guess
2: that's a great point, Nina. I mean the um, the music. I think I, I I do sometimes. Sometimes it's very emotive. Sometimes it's it's very true to how I'm feeling. You know, and great artists are like that. I'm not saying I'm a great artist, but there's some honesty in it. You know, and I think people can hear honesty in music. Yeah. Um, you know, uh it's, it's quite hard to articulate, but that, I think that's one of the things I like to think that um, happens within what I do.
1: Yeah. And the funny thing is that the album, I, I think you would never even imagine it, that 25, I saw this also, 25 years after the release, it became silver in the UK, the album. It's
2: crazy, is Selling
1: it? over 60,000 copies. So that means that throughout maybe three or four generations of dance music lovers, people are always coming back to... I, album. D-
2: I, I didn't even know that.
1: <laughs> you didn't get that? Well,
2: when was the, when did it go silver? The 8th,
1: the 8th of September, over 25 years since the original release, the album was certified silver in the UK by BPI, selling over 60,000 copies. Last yeah. year? Yeah. Nobody told me. Don't you love that! I guess, I guess you still have some... Pla- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess you have a platter to, to pick up. I guess
2: I've got a couple of discs, and, the, and, and I feel I feel really weird. I think they're in the toilet at home.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's weird.
2: It's weird, but
1: no. But guys, I think you should be allowed to those of accomplishments. Yeah. You should put them away. Well, they're it's not they're proud away. They're in the
2: toilet. They're in, they're in, in the, the, the toilet. shitter. You have a big uh-huh. toilet then. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not really into my, many of those things. I'm quite self conscious, but um, he says, "For quite a man that talks too much," but. Um, yeah, uh, I've got gold. I've got a couple of gold discs and some or other. I don't know. Not really. Not really my thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, at least there you go. Twenty-five years. That, so that kind of proves the point that the, you, the music that you made are pretty much evergreens. Yeah, yeah it's
2: interesting stuff. It's yeah. interesting stuff.
1: Um, and now you're bringing back that album. Now yeah. we can talk about it. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Finally, because uh, oh, on the March first, yeah. you're releasing Far from the Medan uh, Medan Crowd. The symphony rehearsals. So that,
2: yeah, so this started off as an idea last. Well, I don't know why it's an idea because uh, they're already structured and written in that manner. Yeah. Stru- straight away.
1: The or, orchestral. Yeah, they're, 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 bits and pieces in there. Yeah.
2: yeah, they're already. You know, the way I kind of constructed those records was in a kind of classical format if you listen to Because that.
1: of your education in the past also.
2: Yeah and it's not deliberate just how it came out yeah. so if you listen to the str- if you go to the early versions of Offshore there's a whole there's lots of the legato strings doing mm-hmm. long bowing stuff and um it makes perfect sense to, to, to revisit that uh, yeah. uh, uh, so we it started off as an idea I tell you what we should probably do this as as, as a show
1: Yeah
2: and there's been a thing for a long time for bands, whether you're, whether you're James, Wade, you two, whoever to, to do a show where they play the the album from beginning to end as, as the audience would have listened to it back yeah. in their car or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we thought, okay, so why don't we, let's take that album and, and do it. And then we thought, well, should, should, should it be reinvent reinvented to be done with an orchestra? So, yeah. um, and it's not a complete orchestra. I actually, I, 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 I should say, it's not all the kettle drums and trombones. It's the majority of it is, is string sections and horns.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so, uh, I went up to Manchester last year, and I and I, I, I met a great guy called Joe Dedell who um helped me helped me score out the, the actual thing.
1: Yeah. So you took your music and created scores out of it, and then
2: yeah, it's g- quite g- yeah. it's quite a process.
1: I can imagine because you you have to. Write all these notes down and it's everything. Quite, it's
2: quite yeah. funny because I, I would send him chunks of the stems of of, yeah. of, of what I had, and he and he ring me up and go, Nick, what the hell is this? What <laughs> the <laughs> fuck is this bit? And, yeah. like, and I'm like, yeah, because uh, I, because I, I, it was just some of it was just chaotic. They yeah. <laughs> you know, go, there was one piece in particular where I did something absolutely. Random and I changed the time signature halfway through the, the track. I think it's the o- opening number early, and we had a nosebleed with it. Yeah. So, I, I, it, unbeknown to me, I changed the time signature, on the fucking hear that <laughs> anyway. So, I worked with this guy, great, and Joe's great. So, um, we went up and we did a rehearsal, and we we thought, do you know what, let's record it all. Yeah. So we got it. Didn't intend to do anything with it. Um, and for for million reasons, the show didn't happen last year we're going to try and do the show this year yeah and um and I, and I thought what does this what does this sound like and and the rehearsals are amazing there's loads of artifacts and noises and clunks and stuff and i took the majority of all the drums off the original tracks and it's like far from the maddening crowd symphonic unplugged so there's there's very little drums in it yeah. the whole, and you get to hear kind of how the thing not should have sounded, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's what it was supposed to be back in 1997. Well,
2: do you know? Do you know what I talk about this quite a lot, and and I use this phrase back in 1996 and earlier. I was a really frustrated artist because in my head, I knew how I wanted it to happen, but the techniques and the technology and the production know-how
1: mm-hmm. wasn't there. Yeah,
2: it's pretty much caught up to my head now. Yeah, so. I had this phrase, I had, you had what you want, and then you get what you get. Yeah. Right? And when I think about it now, um, I, I've i got what I want, and I got what I got. <laughs> um, so, it's really fascinating listening to those things, and I'm really, really excited about the show. The show is going to be something else, because um, for all my years in music, I haven't ever s- stood in front of an orchestra physically playing my stuff mm-hmm. and it is the most bizarre thing because we well actually most people listen to bloody music coming out of the horrible speakers on your iphone or a single speaker which is mono yeah or a stereo left and right the closest thing is 5.1 dolby
1: dolby yeah. surround,
2: yeah when you when you go and you sit and listen to an orchestra. And I've only done it a few times. I went and saw Gladiator, the film, and, and the, they played the score in front of you. Yeah. And when you're in front of it, uh, let's say you're stood right in the center of the orchestra, the violins are placed over there, and the cellos over here, and the violas there, and, and the, the basses. It's like surround sound, but not like you've ever experienced because you're in it. And um, so much details. Yeah, yeah. And I was just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Because it doesn't, I'll be honest with you, it does not translate on recorded no. material. It oh. simply does not. So the live show when we do it this year, uh, haven't quite worked out what it's going to be. It's a big, It's going to be a big place. could be something like the Albert Hall, not sure, back, yeah. in, back in the UK. Uh, and it might be something we even think about touring. Um, I would love to see it. Yeah, but I, I, there I'm must
1: really be there must be a very very expensive thing to yeah. tour around with.
2: Ah, uh, yeah, I haven't spoken to Louis about that. Bit, <laughs> um, well, that's just don't worry. Because about how, that. how big is the orchestra
1: that that recorded uh, this piece?
2: Uh, I think that was thirty pieces, um, <laughs> and of course, that's there's all the miking and everything that goes with that. Um, yeah. and whenever you're working with an orchestra, it's um, um. It's very strange, actually, because the first time I ever did something with an orchestra, mm-hmm. I, I remember saying to him, "Oh, can you just uh, just, just, just play that bit again and just, just just drop that note there, They don't work like that, no, because they are effectively machines, yeah, and they will only play what's in front of them. Yeah. And I learned my lesson with that. So, and also, they go out of tune, you know, everything, you know, uh, they're living machines, and it's, um, it's going to be fun. Really, really good fun.
1: Is there already a dot on, the, dot on the horizon where it's going to be the first performance? Or it'll be this year. This year,
2: it'll be this year, um, and it'll be probably London. Okay. Uh, and but it's something I'm looking to do more of. You know, behind the sun will probably be the second one. Yeah. Uh, but we'll play. We'll play the show from beginning to end, yeah. uh, and then I'll probably. DJ for a bit or, or, or no I haven't quite worked out the exact structure of, no. of the show it's still a
1: work in process yeah it's it's still in the rehearsal parts
2: yeah and do you know what it's like I'm kind of I've done it backwards, backwards because I'm, I'm releasing the rehearsals
1: uh, before yeah. before we've even done it. And yeah, that's when I, when I saw Symphony rehearsal, I'm like, "What for, is this?" I asked James, "Your A and R, like, what are you sending me? What is this, <laughs> this, this 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 project? Is it a project? Is it an album? What's going to happen? What's
2: wrong with him?" Yeah. Well, I mean, what's wrong with him? I um, will tell you what's wrong with me. Uh, I got apart from having laryngitis and COVID and all that, all that. <laughs> the nature of the business, and you'll understand this, Ruben, because you two and you work. Um, Ah, uh, so many facets. So, I'm the CEO of my record company.
1: Yeah. Modena. Uh,
2: Modena. Uh, I do my own radio show each week, uh, which is getting bigger and bigger and crazier and crazier. I do my own podcast. Mm-hmm. I shoot my own videos. I'm doing so many things. I haven't gone into the gigs. We were going up and down the country doing Sunset's Lives last last year. Um. I'm running out of time. I'm sort of stretching myself and it's one of the things you never want to do is stretch yourself too thin and not, and something falls short. So, um, that's kind of what happened with the show. We, we, we just got crazy with other stuff. Uh, we did the album last year that went mental. That was my biggest album so far to date, which was amazing. It was like number one in 10 or 11 different countries in the dance chart. You know, uh, and including the states, it was number one in Dubai, um, national, top ten UK national, and um, he just—I'm finding that I think more than ever. Just I think just also a bit of age creeping in. I, I've really got to focus on the priorities and and what's what's important and and. Uh, and you know, I, I'm I've embarked on finishing another album this year. I should I should just take myself out and have a real good word with myself because, um, <laughs> I, I, but you know, I I'm also you know I stopped drinking two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. My my productivity went up. Um, I spend a lot of time talking to people about recovery and mental health, and I find myself in in a really purple patch with my productivity and mm-hmm. and what's happening. Uh so, uh, but I'm just trying to I'm just trying to rein myself in a bit,
1: you know. <laughs> I can understand. Well, we we, we spoke about this with Eskew because he he's also doing he's running a label. He's also managing a few artists, and he was talking about working with certain pillars, so like color pillars. These are the priorities for the coming time for this yeah. this project. So, I guess that's the, the the way to do it. You work on your pillars, and then what else is there? Then you have time to work on it, other projects.
0: Was, was it also a reason why you got sober? Do you want to be more productive or?
2: Um, it's a very interesting and long conversation, and I'll give, I'll give you. <laughs> Sorry for. Uh... I'll give you the. No, I'll give you the potted history. Uh, no, I just found myself, uh, affecting my work. Um, I was, uh, I'm sure Ruby can appreciate this. I was jetting around the world, drinking lots of vodka and Red Bull, uh, going on stage, feeling crap, getting up, doing it again the next day, getting on a plane, get, and, um,
1: yeah, you wear and, yourself out, it's impossible. And you wear
2: yourself out. Um, I, I'm 52 years old and I started this in 1996, okay? So, uh, and I discovered that alcohol was was catching up with me and I started to get into t- just a bad place with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a class A drug if it was released today. Oh, 100%. Yeah. It's the most misunderstood drug of the But also world. I think... Yeah.
1: Touring, uh, being a touring DJ, there's a lot of um, temptations also yeah. because everybody's offering these things to you. But uh, I quite, f- I found out quite quickly that uh, touring is actually top sports. Yeah. So let's say because sometimes you, you, you don't sleep for three days in a row, it's impossible to people. also throw alcohol in there because oh yeah. or because you just destroy yourself.
2: You only need to look at the Avicii situation yeah. to start to understand. And that was a pivotal moment when people started to go, what the fuck is going on here? Mm -hmm. And, you know... They only
1: see the glamorous side of things.
2: Yeah. Yeah, You know, I was joking with Nina earlier saying, you know, you're leaving a Lamborghini, arriving in a helicopter. (laughs) Like, fuck. Yeah. You know, I can can remember a situation, probably just before COVID, and I played, I think, The Exchange in LA and somewhere in Soundbar in Chicago or something and, and somewhere else. And I found myself in a hotel lobby, really lonely, really tired, drinking, drinking... To knock back the seven hours wait before I go get the plane home, um, you know, the great things of life are, are shit unless you have got someone to share them with. True, yeah, you know. And I, I was just becoming disenchanted with it, uh, and my body didn't like it anymore. And I had to, I had to make some changes, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, and I spend a lot of my time working with people in recovery now mm-hmm. uh, and, and talking about you know, what's going on and the dangers of it all, you know, and it's not like I'm, you know, uh, some granddad and saying, you know, you shouldn't do that. Everyone's got to find out for themselves. You know, I've had some hilarious times on tour, you know, I've got some terrible hijinks, most of which we can't discuss today. Um, (laughs) uh, But um, the interesting thing is, you know, from touring for 20 odd years, having stopped doing that, um my life is inconsequentially better. I haven't had one row with my wife. I haven't had one thing go wrong. In fact, everything is better. So you've got to ask yourself some questions and reevaluate how we frame something like alcohol. Mm-hmm. Like we just said, it's a class A drug. You know, and we have this saying for people in recovery, you get drunk at your first drink and you go, well, no, I don't. I got drunk at, Tequila number 722, yeah.
1: you
2: know. <laughs> and the reason we say that is because it's a mind-altering substance, you know. And uh, after that first drink or drug, you can you can achieve anything. You can do anything, you you know. I, I, I had a temporary sponsor, a great friend of mine who remained nameless, who went out on a Friday night in London, woke up on a Sunday afternoon on a, on a, on a sun lounger in Ibiza and had no knowledge of how he got there.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I started doing stuff like that. Yeah. So that's confronting. Yeah. So yeah, it's it. it, it was really interesting. But the, the most interesting thing is, is that my productivity's gone through the roof. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it used to take me about three years plus to do an album. Shit, I'm doing one a year at the minute. It's draining, though.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for for sharing that with us. That's really nice. well.
2: Yeah. It's important. I mean, okay. uh, anyone that's in recovery or uh, has had an issue with substance or abuse of any anything. Um, talking about it is very important, you yeah. hear the phrase, a problem, half is a problem shared and that's exactly yeah. what happens in yeah. I- people in recovery. And actually the amount of artists in recovery is astounding. It's insane. Yeah.
1: <laughs> because you take creative, introvert people and we we are being forced into an extroverted world. So that's already, uh, already a very hard thing to do for yeah. most of us, so I guess. Yeah, The easy way is to, to grab the bottle and just become or drugs or anything, just to pursue something that you're not
2: well, okay. it's uh, you know, uh, or
1: make everything easier. Well, we
2: won't, I won't go too deep into it, but th- there's some very simple science behind drinking and drugging, it's about dopamine and how it yeah. rewards your brain, uh, much like social media does, for yeah. ki- you know. And, um, and you go, well, well, why am I doing that? What's that all about, you know? And then when you don't drink, or drug for three or three years, your, your, all your dopamine levels are really as you were like a 10 year old or whatever. You yeah, know? And you get a kick out of life and you go, Oh, so if anyone that's got a problem right now and that's listening to this podcast, think back to when you were eight or 10. Did you use drink or drugs? Oh, you probably didn't. And did you have a good time? Yeah, I had a great time. I was out of my BMX, I was, out of my, I was out of my mates. I was doing this, I was doing that, you know. And I get a kick out of music. And it's like, you then realize. Alcohol and drugs are like fake dopamines, yeah. you know. And it's like when you look at dopamine in the, in the in the dictionary, it says wants to be repeated.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's why people swipe, 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 constant like mini hits of dopamine. Yes, I think it's concerning that it's, this is far away from any music related podcast right now. But yeah, I guess sorry, mate. no, no, no it's, it's, it's it's fine. No, it's it's actually nice to talk about this as well. Um, I think it's concerning that kids of such young age are being Fat so much dopamine right now,
2: yeah. yeah and it's not—it's concerning. It, it's not also—it's not normal dopamine. It's um, like you say, they swipe up. Uh, so let's take America. We have to be twenty-one to drink in America,
1: yeah.
2: Kids have got iPhones, age five or six probably, and the imagery is shocking imagery. So each post that the individual will do, they want to grab someone's attention. So they've got—I don't know—a cat falling out a window yeah. or whatever it is, and our brains aren't used to that. They're getting levels of dopamine that you would associate with doing cocaine.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: and that is absolutely—I'm not bullshitting. That's how it is. It's fascinating stuff. But
0: it's also like the idea of addiction, of what addiction is. People, people don't really get it because people think, okay, I'm not addicted because I'm not under a bridge. I am not uh, homeless. I'm not. I don't like. I have money. I have a job and people don't understand that addiction is not you're not addicted to a substance but your head is addicted it's a disease in yeah. your head it's a mental disease so like if people would if there would be more people talking about it and disease would get this disease would get more recognition then we, we can open up the discussion about when are you addicted? Like w- what's, what's yeah. addiction to someone instead of just being like, okay, all these junkies or whatever, they, they are all those
2: no-lives living under well, their it's, it's a very interesting thing, Nina, because um, from my experience, and I can say my experience, um, the people I've met in addiction and in recovery, there are some common threads that go through them. They're independent. Yeah, they're highly successful. Uh, they're really driven, and they're probably obsessive. Yeah. And when I look at that, that's me. And when I, and when I got well, and I, well, I had a good look at myself, I went, um, "You've got five Audis, McLaren. Um, you run like a lunatic. Your portion size when you eat crazy. You every single everything's extreme. Everything yeah. I do is I don't have a I don't have a I'll just do a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, but that's really common, yeah. so, a, a, and you see those. So it's like addiction is a byproduct of people that are really driven and and, and successful uh, to the extent. People like Lewis Hamilton, Michael Schumacher, Tiger Woods, people that have been obsessive about their sports, yeah. they're borderline addicts. If they fli- yeah. if it's flipped over, if that makes any sense, I don't know. 100%, yeah. yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it's Because otherwise
1: you wouldn't be, if you're so obsessed about something, uh, otherwise you wouldn't be so successful because you spend so much time and you put away a lot of time with friends or, or yeah, so, you would skip certain things to achieve uh, a goal that you have in mind. So this yeah. comes
2: round back to music, okay? Yeah. So the classic interview went, Nick, you've been really lucky, you know, you've done all those things. And I went... No, you worked your butt off. I went, I wasn't lucky. I was just relentless. Yeah. So... The bit where I, I was in the studio, I mean, I can remember going to college. Yeah. Everyone was drinking and drugging and shagging and doing all these things. I spent a decade, and I mean a decade, no girlfriend, no nothing, in the studio. Just making music. Just doing this thing. Yeah. And then when something started to work, and the thing that people don't really understand about the people that are successful in our industry is that they are the sum of their parts, i.e., what you haven't seen is probably the 20,000 versions of things that they did before, one one stuck. You're throwing mud at the wall all the time, yeah? Eventually, little bit sticks, and then you keep going. And the thing is, is that when I said, you know, there's not many people left f- from when I started, that's because I'm a nutcase. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I guess a lot of people gave up after, especially if you, you, you grew up in the early 2000s, I guess, making music, selling tons of records, you would hit the year 2005, uh, the vinyl sales are gone, yeah. CD sales are gone, and you're like, ah, this is not worth it anymore. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I think you're either a nutcase or you, you truly, it's, you'd do it anyway if yeah. it wasn't...
1: Because of the passion about yeah, it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Music's a really bizarre thing. I spent a bit of time just, you know, as as you would, downtime to trying to study and trying to understand what exactly music is. Mm -hmm. Because it's sound waves on different frequencies which make you, which alter your mood. And, you know, and it's like, it's very peculiar and it's our only global language. You know, how does someone know that that's a sad song? Uh, And and, and it does does various things to you. And it's a really, it's a really tricky thing. And I I think of myself as a pied piper of music slightly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I have you under control. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Here's a 400 hertz. Yeah. Like.
0: No, but do you also think that for DJs nowadays or producers that um, DJ, is it important to study music? Um,
2: understand, To understand what it is you're delving into, yeah, like I just discussed, it, it's a very curious medium. Uh, uh,
1: but there's, like, what do you mean with with? study music because on one well, side you can you can study you can study chords or melody progression stuff like that but also on the other side you could study a certain synthesizer and just make it your own and so you understand how to make a certain well, sound well I
0: kind of mean like studying um, really studying music like um, knowing your chords knowing your music um. well there's uh,
2: I know from experience I cannot teach you to write music uh, a a writer um it that's in you. I, 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 I can I can explain it, but it was like when I walked past this tent and I heard Jean michel coming and I went, I can do that. Yeah. And it's I've always been like that. And it's a really trippy thing. But you've got brilliantly trained musicians who can play amazing, you know. And I I play the piano like I've got my fingers cellotaped together, <sighs> you know. I am <laughs> You should hear me try and do poppy holler live. It's yeah. it's a fucking car crash. <laughs> um, anyway, um I digress. Uh they're brilliant, but doesn't mean doesn't mean you can write no, music. Writing it's music is almost it's almost a form of communication. It, it, it's putting down a, a, a form of emotion that the listener understands and, and gets. It's, it's a bit if that makes any sense. Yeah. Oh, it does make sense.
1: No, I think I agree as well.
2: But I was I was just
0: asking because you said you actually
2: studied music, right? I did, so, but I hated it. I was yeah. I was awful. I was awful. I did I got classically trained in guitar and piano. But and I violin. also think
1: um because I, we spoke about it with other artists as well that were classically trained and they wish that they weren't. Because mm. they learn how to use certain chords and progressive stuff like that and they cannot deviate from it. Yeah. So, because they are trained into it, they, in their mind, it's the only correct way to cer- do certain things. And I think if you're young and you don't, don't have any study of music, you're more free, yeah, to do whatever you know. Yeah, if, I mean, if, you, if, if, you're if like, it sounds nice, it's be, nice.
2: Because I was dyslexic, I, I couldn't read music, so I only got so far with passing your your your, your actual grades by a perfect pitch. Yeah, you know, I, I you know, my ears are. But I just do things in random ways, you know, and that's great. You know, I follow no rules. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you make the rules.
2: Well, I break them actually. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's get back to, to a couple of things that I really wanted to discuss with mm. you because obviously you have your own radio show, Sunsets.
2: Yeah.
1: Episode 500 is coming up. I know. What are you going to do? Something that nice is coming up.
2: I was Thinking about going on holiday. Sort of <laughs> Five hundred hours is like what's that? A year and a half. <laughs>
1: You're not a math uh, um, wizard either. No,
2: <laughs> it's, it's um, yeah,
1: uh, maybe another sunset's life on location. Somewhere.
2: Well, we're doing some big sunsets Lives this year. We did we did a whole bunch of stuff uh, last year where we we went somewhere different every month. Mm-hmm. We did the show. They weren't show. They weren't gigs. They were a bit like those circle gigs, you know. uh, They were Find Somewhere Amazing. I love them, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. we do do the show, Somewhere Crazy, the end of a pier. I mean, we did some mad shit. We're going to do two or three events, which will be sunset shows. The sunset show is quite difficult to pull off, uh, unless the venue's correct. It's a Café Del Mar, kind of Café Mambo ethos where... When I the whole thing started out by by wanting to do our own shows, so what what was it that I did that was unique? And it was that fact I had dance anthems on one hand and beautiful down tempos things. So we created sunsets, and the idea was. And I also didn't, I don't adhere to that that banging full on thing. And you know, people have their shows. You know, whether mm-hmm. you're whether you're Warman van Buren or Above and Beyond, my my stuff was kind of like. Um, start beautiful, sun starts going down from the beach to the dance floor and then, it up, and then it goes up tempo. And the idea is is that it was never a club show and we did a couple of shows this last year which were amazing uh, in amazing venues where, I mean, I, I started off doing this ages ago. I did it. I did sunsets on the slopes when I lived out in the French Alps mm-hmm. where when it came to uh, Apre and the sun was going down I started off beautiful and then we did a fake sunset and then it went off uh, and that was messy. Very messy. Um, so, for, pl- for places and venues where you haven't got the sun going down behind the sea, you know, um, we did one at a place called The Wave in Bristol and that's an amazing inland surf resort and it's just got the right vibe for what we do. Yeah. So we're going to do some very specific sunset shows this year. Uh, okay. And... It takes a long time to sort of put that thing together. Like, you know, it's always, it's been my brand for a while now, yeah. but it's not something you could just turn up and do at the Ministry of Sound. It doesn't work like that. It, it, it's, it's location and weather dependent, shall we say. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. Because you need to have the sun and the set.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And another thing I want to talk about, because now you're in the podcast, but you also do a podcast yourself. We do. Yeah. Um, sunsets after.
2: After sunsets.
1: After sunsets, sorry. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah. Because just, you have some interesting guests on there.
2: Uh, some amazing guests on there. Um, Yeah, that's all connected with recovery. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and also being wiser and a little bit older and...
1: Is it a therapy session for yourself?
2: Well, um, probably. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're about high... Li- uh, the podcast should probably be called How Life Was and How Life Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that caters for people that aren't in recovery or have had addiction issues because we've had some great guests on and all sorts of people coming up. Um, it's been really good fun doing that. Again, massively time, time consuming. Bet, yeah. And we've got a studio, it's all white as well, not dissimilar to this, uh, <laughs> where we, we film it just like this and uh, it's really good fun. Uh, we're coming to the end of kind of our first sort of season of it, and I think we're going to have a little break and then are going to do another season at the end of the year. Uh, uh, because it, it, believe it or not, it's just a full-time job trying to book the guests. There's, there's basically me, my stepson Edward, and Louis, and that is the entire record company. Yeah. And we do all these things. So, it's getting busy. I mean, I love After Sunsets. I mean… I so you mean,
1: put another pillar down? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because you had enough time already.
2: Well, yeah, it's just kind of wow. Um but about, to be
1: honest, like it, it, when you come in with Louis, you, you should already record that because there's this non-stop stories <laughs> and, and things, and yeah. you, you guys don't stop talking. <laughs> anyway, so you, you just know. record you guys twenty four seven. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah Louis got some stories. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's been really, it's been really good. You know, I really enjoyed doing those those shows. Um, but I've also got a little bit of a. Little bit of an eye on the fact that, excuse my French, but every fucker's doing a podcast now. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure I, w- I want to, uh, whether I'll continue doing that because it's a bit like uphill snowboarding. <laughs> and I don't know Guess really. no, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It, it depends what message you're trying to get across and, and what it represents for you, you know. Um, and yeah, you are probably right. It is probably slightly cathartic.
1: Well, it helps a lot, I guess. Yeah. Um. Besides all the music that you're releasing, you also run a Patreon. Yeah. What okay. made you start doing the Patreon? Well, that's
2: part. That's part of the art. Yeah. yeah. So, within the whole thing. So
1: it's a website where people can subscribe, and you get certain perks in return. Yeah. So that's,
2: the, idea, the idea, sure, so if I start at the beginning, we did we started the radio show um, 10, 15, 11 years ago. Yeah. And it's completely free. Everyone gets it. You know. But the reality of that is, Ruben, is that, like, you know, we've done 500 episodes of that nearly, and actually it's starting to cost a lot to do. It's time consuming. Yeah. And, you know, these things have to be, have to, do have to be maintain some sort of semblance of a business model. Yeah. So, after Sunsets and all the bits that went with it, Sunsets Live, we do all the behind the scenes, and you see how this stuff. That was, that was ideally meant to be, uh, uh a a a patron thing so people can you know subscribe and get more of this and that and other. so um and um yeah it, it but it's it's slow it, these things don't happen overnight you no. know so yeah so we're we're working with that um yeah i don't think there's anything we're not doing really uh, the only thing i'm not doing is race car driving or or yeah buying, <laughs> buying a hovercraft. yeah yet. Uh,
1: <laughs> oh amazing so there's well looking at things right now there's a lot of things coming this year then. Yeah. so you have your symphony shows coming up some cool live streams your radio show keeps on going you already told me you already finished an album yeah. you're gonna do more symphony um, rehearsal stuff on behind yeah, the sun for example we got the album
2: coming out in March the symphony album yeah.
1: that's March 1st yeah and already another album coming at the end of the year yeah yeah, it's kind of mental. <laughs> kind of mental. That's a lot of things, man.
2: Yeah, it's, it, yeah, I, I'm, and I'll be honest with you, uh, I've not been that, that well. I got COVID over Christmas. As you can tell, my singing voice is like Fantastic. Unusual. Wait, okay, here we go. Put on some reverb. Somewhere over the sea, waiting for me. <laughs> fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's, um, so, I, you know, uh, I've probably been pushing myself a bit too hard. I've got a big show uh, this weekend at the Steel Yard in London. That's a sold-out show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I've I, I got to take it maybe a little easier. <laughs> he says, I won't. That's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> a lie. Yeah,
1: done, you have been doing that in 25 years. So. But thank you so much for answering all these questions and giving oh, us a little pleasure. bit of insight of the world of Chicane.
2: Yeah, uh, listen, guys, I really appreciate coming up. It's good to see you guys again.
1: Yeah. So, 1st of March, the album is coming out. Yeah. I think there's some bits and pieces already, you know, some teasers here and there already. Yeah, on, there's on. some
2: teasers, yeah. And um, I've got a couple of very exciting new records for the new album. Awesome. I'm not saying anymore.
1: Oh, you have to listen to it.
2: I played you some earlier. You there know. you go. Easy. <laughs> yes.
1: Thank you so much, She Kane. Thank uh, you, buddy. Thank you for watching this podcast. We're going to be back with a new one very soon. Keep the eye on the socials. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in. Check all previous episodes on YouTube or your favorite podcast portal.